How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great being with you. Um, I think many of our regular listeners know about a month ago I joined the Leslie Marshall family and I'll be coming to you live every Thursday and today we're here for the full show yeah that's right we're here for the full show three to six and we have a jam-packed show amazing guests as always informative conversation really how do we set the agenda moving forward for the next few days my guests are in it they're talking about it and they know about it and I'm happy to bring them to you I would love for you to join in the conversation. If you want to join in or give us a call, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And you can follow along on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. So right before we started the show, none other than our very own President Barack Obama formally endorsed, oh, President, see, I'm speaking it into existence, Uh, Hillary Clinton as the next president of the United States. I think many people know that the president sat down with Bernie Sanders a little bit earlier today. We'll definitely have uh, some conversation about that, but I'd love to hear from you, so give us a call or shoot us a message on Twitter. But now I got to get to my panel because it is amazing. They look good. They're in studio. We are, we're, and it's actually finally nice in DC people. It has been horrible, um, but we have a great day. So let me just bring them into the conversation really quick. And I'm excited because one of my former law professors is in studio with me and I get to ask the questions. I mean, this is a great day. <laughs> I am so proud. <laughs> None other than Bill Marshall, who's the Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina. Um, he was the cool law professor when we were at Carolina because he was the Deputy White House Counsel and the Bill um, under President Bill Clinton, Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States during the Clinton administration, and was an SG of the state of Ohio. So he was actually a law professor who did something. So there was that whole thing, which was very unique. And he always wore ripped jeans. Do you still wear ripped? Not as much anymore. It was cool. It was cool back then. Um, Also in studios, none other than one of my dear friends um, who's with me in the mommy struggle. Uh, But in addition, she has been a great supporter for my old boss that many of you know about, Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, But it's been a leader, whether it's working for President Barack Obama in 08 as political director or leading democracy efforts at Ford Foundation. But none other than Dawn Smalls, who's also a board member for 
for ACS and is a partner at Boy Schiller in New York. Dawn, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And rounding up our panel is none other than Peter Chen. Peter is a 2016 graduate at Chicago Kent College of Law and was a former ACS president and ACS Next Generation leader. And as a part of his ACS work, he created a Judicial Vacancy Crisis Action Committee. Usually you're just like trying to get on law review, but you were like doing a lot more, Peter. It was, uh, it, it, it was a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And the reason I have this esteemed panel, um, both Bill and Dawn are board members for the American Constitution Society. And this week here in Washington, D.C., over 2,000 lawyers, litigators, judges um, from all over the country assemble for really what is the preeminent progressive I would say conference um, think tank kind of mini think tank for the weekend Um, and I had to bring them in here and so Bill I know you've been on the board of ACS for a while but why did you get involved and why do you think this is so important? Well ACS I think presents a vision of the Constitution as it should be I mean we've heard really since the 1980s a conservative group talk about originalism which if you take a look at constitutional history isn't original at all. Right. The the original (laughs) interpretation uh, beginning with Chief Justice John Marshall, was that that you understood the Constitution to be something that needed to be interpreted in context, uh, in the context of the time, not with reference to what the framers specifically might have thought about a given issue in the in the 1780s. In fact, the framers didn't think about the Constitution in that way. Right. They understood <laughs> that it was going to be something that would be interpreted going forward. And, and ACS was put together really to to let to folks know what the Constitution truly was all about. And, Dawn, I always think it's interesting because there's a, a mix of both people who are practitioners, but you have academics um, who were really involved. So, so why did you get involved in ACS? Well, I got involved as a student. Mm. So I've, I've, I've tracked the evolution of the organization since its inception uh, 15 years ago. So when I was a law student, um, I very acutely felt um, the presence um, of the Federalist Society mm-hmm. and, and really felt that there was a vacuum um, in terms of an organization that could represent a progressive vision of the law mm-hmm. um, and also felt somewhat underrepresented and under assault. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when the very first nuggets of ACS, then called the James Madison Society, right. came about and said a group of students are really coming together to, one, provide a home for people that really um, promote a progressive vision of the law and then also want to proactively uh, figure out how to move move a progressive agenda of the law. Um, I knew that that was something that uh, I wanted to uh, be a part of and uh, do my best to, to kind of move forward. And Peter, you know, you are our most recent graduate, so you're the person who's been closest to it, um, and you served as an ACS president. So why did you feel the need, on top of everything else you were doing in law school, to really dive in and take such a leadership role? Yeah, I mean, law school, there's a lot of different responsibilities you have to do, law review, that kind of stuff. But ACS is really kind of the heart of why I came to law school in the first place. Um, I mean, before I came to law school, there was that thing called Citizens United, and I knew that I didn't really like the result there, but I wasn't really sure, like, why that happened and why everybody else didn't like it. And I heard that there was this intellectual force called the Federalist Society that was kind of responsible for it. 
And so I wanted to know who the counterweight uh, to that was. And um, after some research, it was ACS. And so then I decided I wanted to put every extra time uh, that I had uh, into making sure that the message of ACS got out to my fellow classmates in my community. Now, I mean, this was readily apparent when I was still at Carolina, <clears throat> but you felt that people who were in the Federalist Society knew where they were going after law school. Everybody talked about being a partner or a judge. And ACS, while we were still in, maybe this was some of the earlier days of the institution, we were still trying to figure out what we wanted to do. But it was almost as if in federal in the Federalist Society, they were in putting you in place for the next level in your career. Um, and maybe we weren't as deliberate in what we were trying to do. Is that still the case that you find and law school now? I think ACS has been uh, very deliberate um, in terms of uh, making sure that the pipeline for the next generation of judges and prosecutors um, and partners at large law firms and all of those uh, leadership positions in the legal community are represented by people who share our vision of the Constitution and the law. Um, I, one of the first things I got when I went to my first ACS student convention three years ago was a little packet that said, your path to the federal uh, bench. Wow. And, I mean, I I don't think that I have the chops for that, but uh, I, it was really cool to know that there's kind of a pathway that somebody has kind of thought through this. And, Bill, I mean, you saw the beginnings of ACS, and you saw very much um, the power of the conservative bar, so to speak, um, particularly in your time during the Clinton White House. Is that one of the reasons why you're really out here doing this work? Well, again, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that what they, they're, they're to be congratulated. They, they made themselves a network, and they have pushed through a lot of people of, of similar views, and I, I think that that the time was there to make sure that that ACS folks who were actually much more mainstream mm -hmm. in terms of legal mm -hmm. thought right. had the same kind of opportunities. Right. Now, Don, you know, we're going to get ready to go to the break in about a minute or so. But when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of where we are right now with the Scalia vacancy. Um, what I find is that there is this deliberate obstruction on moving forward on the nomination to replace Justice Scalia because they're hoping to hold the seat open. But who are they holding the seat open for? Donald Trump? I mean, we know how he feels about the federal judiciary. So we're going to dig into that as soon as we come back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. these requirements, I regret those comments that he made. I don't think uh, claiming a person can't do their job because of their race is sort of like the textbook definition of a racist comment. I think that should be absolutely disavowed. It's absolutely unacceptable. But do I believe that Hillary Clinton is the answer? No, I do not. Do I believe that Hillary Clinton is going to be the answer to solving these problems? I do not. 
I believe that we have more common ground on the policy issues of the day, and we have more likelihood of getting our policies enacted with him than we do with her. But I do absolutely disavow those comments. I think they're wrong. I don't think they're right-headed. And, and the thinking behind it is something I don't even personally relate to. But at the end of the day, this is about ideas. This is about moving our agenda forward, and that's why we're moving the way we're moving. Many. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you're interested in joining the conversation, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We just heard leader Paul Ryan um, in reference to Donald Trump's racist comments uh, regarding Judge Curiel, who's currently a judge uh, who is hearing the Trump University case. What I found so interesting about Paul Ryan's comments there was he definitely disavows and is trying to create some separation between Donald Trump and his those particular comments, even though Donald Trump has said far worse other things. Um, but... In, but at the same time, he says, well, I don't want Hillary Clinton, as if there's another imaginary person to fill the seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, is he trying to basically have his cake and eat it, too? And Dawn, I'll let you start. Well, I won't I won't make a statement about whether he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. But I will say that this this year is with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee really presents an assault on the rule of law mm-hmm. um, in a way that I, I'm not sure that we have seen before. Um, usually courts and judges and cases before courts are the province of lawyers and conferences like ACS, and then you have the election and, um, you know, the uh, the polls and the primaries. And But when you have a, a uh, you know, a nominee of a major party um, attacking uh, judges and the ability of judges to objectively um, have purview over cases, period, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then taking it to a whole nother level solely based on their heritage is mind-boggling. Right. Um, And so... You know, there are many concerns uh, about, I think, Mr. Trump and uh, his temperament. But just from a lawyer's perspective and as uh, an individual who is part of an organization that really cares about um, the rule of law uh, and the Constitution, um, you know, Mr. Trump's comments really raise some really serious concerns. And, Bill, some have mentioned that potentially with a Donald Trump presidency that we could be on the cusp of a constitutional crisis. You know, what do you say to that? Well, you say yes. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. that what Don just said is absolutely right. I mean, if one qualification, the most essential qualification that the president of the United States has to have is respect for the rule of law. This country, this country demands that. And if we have a president who isn't committed to that, then that should be the disqualifier. So Paul Ryan's statement really doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody is that fundamentally the antithesis of what American democracy is all about, which requires people of both parties to respect the rule of law, then that should be a disqualifier. If there's, if he doesn't like the other person's party, then he can talk about a third party. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. to say that I'm still going to support somebody who doesn't support what our basic institutions require, I think, is fundamentally dangerous. Now, Peter, uh, you're a millennial. 
Um, you are a part of, there's a few interesting tidbits. Um, I often try to bring in a millennial voice because I think you're a unique generation, the most diverse in our country's history, um, most progressive on a, on a series of different metrics. Um, but in addition, you are facing some of the most pressing challenges of our time, whether it's climate, climate change or this, um, massive challenges that we've seen at the ballot box in regards to different voting challenges and definitely student loan debt. And then when you hear kind of comments particularly about um, from Donald Trump, I mean, how how do you feel? I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of all millennials. I know you can't do that, <laughs> but you're on your way to a long um, and I'm sure excellent career in the legal profession. But, you know, when you hear these comments, how does it make you feel from all of these different perspectives that you hold? I would say it's discouraging, um, and it's discouraging and it's concerning. Uh, number one, uh, you know, in law school, you hear about all the uh, the amazing civil rights battles and all the progress that uh, the people that have come before us have made uh, in terms of respect for rule of law um, and in terms of getting to a point where uh, minorities can aspire to the federal judiciary and things like that. And for um, the uh, somebody like Donald Trump, the presumptive nominee of a major party, um, to uh, say things that it makes us think that maybe he doesn't have respect for that progress that we've made. Um, it, it's really concerning because as, as a minority like myself, I'm counting on those, those, that progress to be the stepping stone upon which we can keep moving forward and address those other problems that you've, you've mentioned before. Um, and so in that way, it's, it's very discouraging. Um, I mean, ha having said that, uh, you know, there's there's still an election to be had, and uh, you know, Donald Trump isn't the president yet, um, and you know, maybe won't be. So, mm -hmm. um, there's still some hope. So, Bill and John, I will ask you, where does the legal profession go from here, um, and what do they do? What does what do the members of the ACS do as we head into this, uh, the last few months of this election? Well, I think one of the things we do is have to draw common ground with our conservative compatriots because one thing, at least if you, if you, uh, is that a lot of them are fully committed to the rule of law. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what they're all about, too. We may have different perceptions of how that is accomplished, but, but I think you're hearing a lot from those folks who are committed to that that this is unacceptable to them as well. Mm -hmm. So I think we have a combined, we have a combined, uh, a, a, approach here that that we ought to uh, work together to 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 uh, let the public know that this is basically wrong and I'm, and I'm glad to see a number of conservative voices have said that. Mm -hmm. Dawn, where do we go? I just say that uh, ACS is where ideas meet action mm -hmm. uh, and as we head into November uh, it is incumbent on us to really educate um, both our constituency and members, but also the public about the importance of the courts um, in general and in this election. Don, Bill, Peter, I can't thank you enough. ACS convention going on till Saturday. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon 
and welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show, coming to you live from 3 to 6. I am so excited to be back in the studio um, with a number of my dear friends. And you know what? They're going to want to hear from you as well. So if you can go ahead and give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. That is 866-6LESLIE. And you can follow us on Twitter as well. If you go ahead and follow at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L. Coming to you live in studio. I'm really excited about my next two guests. Um, Joining us is Shilpa Padke, who is the Senior Director for the Women's Initiative at the Center for American Progress. Um, And she can be found on Twitter at CapWomen. Also coming to us live in studio is none other than my dear friend, Tracy Ross, who's the associate director at the poverty, um, at Talk Poverty here at the Center for American Progress. The other thing I'll say is Tracy is also the co-host of Talk Poverty Radio. Um, And I'm sure many of our friends are familiar with Talk Poverty Radio. And in the upcoming weeks, we're going to do a whole segment um, with the Talk Poverty team. We're really excited about them and the great work that they're doing here. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring these two ladies in studio is the fact that we this morning had a really cool event here at CAP. Um, And Shilpa, why don't you tell our uh, audience Uh, What just happened? Yeah, it was great. So this morning we uh, announced a major new poll that we commissioned that really talks about concerns that black and Latina women have about their economic security. And so we did this fabulous event here at CAP this morning, uh, moderated by none other than Melissa Harris-Perry. We had Teresa Younger from the Ms. Foundation, uh, Maria Teresa Kumar from Voto Latino, and uh, our pollster from Latino Decisions. So it was a really wonderful panel. And the goal of it was to talk, the goal of the poll was to really talk about how women of color don't just care about niche issues, that, you know, we don't live in silos, that people's lives, you know, are intersectional, and really wanted to sort of push back on the myth that Latinas only care about immigration. Mm -hmm. Like, guess what? They also care about jobs and the economy and Mm -hmm. paid leave and paid sick days, and sort of similar on uh, the African-American side that, you know, black women don't just care about civil rights, and they care Mm -hmm. about the economy, et cetera. So that was really what the poll was, and really found that economic issues um, are front and center in the minds of African-American and Latina women, especially as they're thinking about the coming election. So a couple numbers for you. Numbers are always good. Audience <laughs> likes numbers. 87% <laughs> of African-American women, 88% of Latinas see improving the economic well-being of working families as the top most important priority for the next president, or one of the top. Wow. Um, And, you know, when we asked people to name two important issues, it was the economy, it was jobs and unemployment. Um, Some folks mentioned health care. Obviously, race relations, racism, immigration uh, also came up, as did education and women's rights. But it's top of mind to voters. Mm -hmm. I think if folks are trying to appeal to a very important part of the electorate, we should start talking about issues. So, Tracy, you spend a lot of time and a lot of your research really focuses and and in a real way centers the issues around poverty in this country. And disproportionately, we see too many of those 
people living in poverty or women and people of color. Um, tell us a little bit about your work and why you think that this poll was so important and how you find yourself talking about these issues, particularly in this election year. Yeah, absolutely. And first I'd say that it was a, it was a fantastic event. Oh, I was, was, I was glad to, to be able to sit in as well as Harris Perry is a, a former professor of mine. So that was a, a treat. Oh, and the panel <laughs> um, was really highlighted um, as Shilpa was just outlining that these are all intersecting issues. Mm -hmm. And so in the work that I do, I look at how your zip code impacts your life outcomes, how your access to good schools, access to childcare, transportation, affordable housing, all of these different things, how they either um, give you a greater social mobility or, or serve as barriers to opportunity. And what's interesting about um, this the survey and highlighting just the, the myriad concerns that people of color have is that, you know, this is what we see in these neighborhoods, that that um, because of our legacies of segregation um, and, and um, uh, uh, neighborhoods that are shut off from opportunity, you see that the average African-American family that makes $100,000 a year actually lives in a more disadvantaged uh, community than a white family wow. making $30,000 a year. Right. So um, the average African-American family making $100,000 a year lives in a more disadvantaged neighborhood than a white family making only $30,000 a year. Wow. And again, this is because of the legacy of segregation that, um, say, if, if my grandmother lived in a disadvantaged community, you know, and that house is in that community, um, it, that's, the, that's the kind of home that's going to be continue to be passed down from generation to generation. That's so right. even right. though we have made great strides on racial justice in this country, um, the legacies exist mm -hmm. of the of um, kind of the, the racist policies of the past. And so I think in the context of this survey, it serves as a reminder that, um, you know, black uh, young people have actually downward mobility, that um, that while families are you know doing better, families of color uh, are doing better in this country. That there's still real barriers and real and they have real concerns about this. So it's not just um, and Shilpa was saying it's not just about you know the the issues that you might predict somebody cares about mm -hmm. based on their skin mm -hmm. color, mm -hmm. but it's these lived experiences and the compounding effects of the economy of of schools of the environment. Right. Um, a lot of issues and and um, I'm glad that this survey really highlighted that. Shilpa, one of the points that I thought was so powerful. Um, today first off again i have to echo it was a mm -hmm. fabulous yeah. panel i mean we have great data but i thought it was unique that we were one of the few institutions that were even asking these questions right um the yeah. poster from latino decisions Sylvia. talked mm -hmm. about the uniqueness of the fact that we were centering african-american and latino women and asking them about their lived experience in their lives one and then secondly showing some of the commonality that their the experiences and what Latino and African American women cared about were so similar and mm -hmm. we often don't maybe really make that point about that kind of sisterhood between the communities I think that's right you know we often um, we've been actually talking about this a lot here at the women's issue and at cap you know for so long issues like paid family leave seem to be issued issues of a privileged few. Mm. Um, and for so long, I think, as we think about women and the importance of women in the election or, you know, women's preferences, um, you, we don't naturally go to brown women or black women, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so mm -hmm. I think we are have a very intentional framing right now mm. to sort of think and redefine and change the conversation um, to sort of make sure that we're encompassing all women. And even though women are diverse, of course, 
we all sort of have these same common challenges. Right. And I think one of the things that this poll shows and a lot of our work is trying to do, especially sort of uh, looking at the this year and how important, you know, everyone's talking about women, how important they are. <laughs> all um, of a sudden, we're very popular. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, really it's, a just, it's to really... Um, Make sure that we're not living in issue silos. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the way that conservatives uh, get to win and they and they beat up on these issues is that they divide us. And mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. this is just another example of how women are more powerful um, when we see the common shared obstacles and we mm-hmm. can kind of unite together. And that's where the power is. So we are going to get ready to go to a break. But, Tracy, when we get back from break, I love a lot. Um, you did a segment recently on Talk Poverty Radio about Beyonce. Yes. <laughs> I just thought it was one of the most interesting pieces. Um, but I think she brings to mind kind of a different definition of challenges. Like it's it's interesting hearing her talk about being a mother, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So like the, the challenges that we all face with child care. I'm currently going through a child care <laughs> crisis myself. My friends in the building know what I'm talking about. Um, and so dealing with these issues um, and bringing it to light in a different way, I, I want to explore a little bit of that in the next segment. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, and we'll be right back after the break with Shilpa and Tracy. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawanjo on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can also follow along on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando. Coming back to us live in studio is none other than Shilpa Padke, who's the Senior Director for the Women's Initiative here at the Center for American Progress. Also, and she tweets at CAP, C-A-P, Women, W-O-M-E-N. Also joining us in studio is the Associate Director of the Poverty Team here at CAP, Tracy L. Ross, and she tweets at Tracy, T-R-A-C-E-Y, L. Ross. So before the break, Tracy, I, I turn to you. I was telling our listeners about this great segment, and I know you're attending the Beyonce concert tomorrow. Um, But I think, you know, there's an interesting conversation right now happening around what we think feminism is, um, what we what we say are issues that are important to women, all women. Um, Why don't you tell the our listeners a little bit about that segment and about kind of the conversation that you feel like is happening um, across the country? Sure. So as uh, most of you should know, unless you're living under a rock, um, (laughs) Beyonce dropped her second visual (laughs) album called Lemonade. And I had um, three of our colleagues to join in on that segment. The four of us 
um, in the studio were black women, and we're talking about the significance of Lemonade to black women. While I think the the album is something that can be appreciated and should be appreciated by by people from all walks of life, the the visual images really spoke to some of the specific um, uh, experiences of the black community, um, particularly in the United States. But there was imagery to suggest the African diaspora as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the beautiful threads throughout it was uh, some of the references to New Orleans um, and the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think the fact that she pulled in um, those specific images, also the mothers of um, young men and boys who'd been killed either by by the hands of police or vigilantes like George Zimmerman, um, she was making a point that, you know, the discussions that we also have about blackness are really steeped in black womanhood mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people are saying this is the first time she's really gotten political. Mm-hmm. She actually she wrote an essay for the Shriver Report that, uh, mm-hmm. that Center for American Progress worked on a couple years ago. You love that plug. <laughs> <laughs> talking about how gender equality is a myth. But um, I think she was, she's been very intentional about talking about um, women's issues over the past couple years, but she made it very clear um, with this, this newest project that there are particular struggles that black women face. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the work highlighted that, and we so we spoke um, about all the different imagery and the implications of that. And and some people might say, well, why is Beyonce, who's someone who's now very affluent, talking mm-hmm. about these issues? But you know, part of the black experience, as I mentioned with that that stat about mm-hmm. middle class blacks often living in more disadvantaged neighborhoods than poor whites, is that uh, the black experience is often a multi income one. Mm-hmm. Even if you're mm-hmm. doing well because of how our, our country's um, economy is working, you have family members or friends who are in various income levels and her being from Houston, Texas, she um, has made a a point to be very connected to her community. And so I think that her brand of feminism is also inclusive of economic justice and racial justice. And Shilpa, I mean, I think some of the work that has been just so fascinating coming out of the Women's Initiative team, um, and I tell them every meeting I go to that I am proud to be an adjunct member of this (laughs) illustrious team, um, is the real centering of quote-unquote women's issues as economic issues and I don't think many people think about child care mm-hmm. as an economic issue um, they don't think about paid family leave as an economic issue but a lot of the work that you've done shows exactly those nexus I yeah for sure I mean I think our work is firmly rooted in how women are central to our economy and if we want to have a thriving economy, then we need to make sure our policies reflect the reality of women in the workforce. And so, yeah, that means access to affordable quality child care, right? It means mm-hmm. um, the ability to take time off if you're sick or if you have a new baby or if your parents are sick. The ability to make sure you're getting paid the same as the man in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, equal pay for equal work is a cornerstone. And so, you know, even the other pillars, pillars of our work, whether it's women's leadership is in the frame of economic opportunity. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Our women's health work is deeply centered in rights and justice. And, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about how autonomy over your body is really an equality argument in mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. sort of centering that work. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very much at our focus. And I think, you know, as we discuss, these issues are not not issues that are just of that folks with privilege deal with. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think it's crazy. You know, we talk a lot about 
how people make the choice of you know leaning in, leaning out, right. um, <laughs> stepping, you know, taking time out of the workforce. I mean, for so many people, those are just, that's just not the reality we work yeah. in. Women are working, and so um, all of the the policies need to reflect really the modern workplace. And- I think that just to jump in, that, that also some of the, the great things that, that your team does, especially in this survey of highlighting that women's issues are economic issues and economic issues are women's issues, is that this isn't um, ju- just shouldn't be the concern of female leaders. That's right. right. That these right. are right. these right. are right. men's issues. Right. Yep. And so right. um, I think mm-hmm. that the survey shows point. that these you know these mm-hmm. households actually care about these issues, but our political leaders aren't necessarily doing the right thing. By by these households, so you know, in in a in any of our homes, mm-hmm. we're not necessarily mm-hmm. talking about these things as women's issues, right. um, even though they they still in many ways are. But you know, we're talking about what needs to to get done to help our household operate and function. And I think a lot of political leaders, especially conservative ones, uh, uh, aren't recognizing that. You know, one yeah. point that came out in the conversation this morning, um, well, two points actually. Maria Teresa Kumar um, from Voto Latino said, you know, when we talk about issues about student loans, um, a Latina and a young white man both sign on the same dotted line when they get their student loans. But when a Latina enters into the workplace, Mm -hmm. she starts making 40 cents to his dollar, right? So how does she repay these issues, right? Right. And then Sylvia coupled and followed up and and said, and you know, we can talk about these issues, but until elections are won and policies are passed, things aren't changing. And that, like, that nexus. And I just thought that that crystallized it Mm -hmm. in such a real way. I was like, yes, yes! (laughs) I wanted to, like, kind of do a little dance there. (laughs) I mean, Shuba, how did you, I mean, what... That hit me, but I don't know how that hit you. No, I mean, it's what we're saying every day. And I think the reality is people running for office need to sort of get on board with these policies. There's a demand for them. And it's time to sort of understand the reality and start moving some of these things across the finish line. Um, To me, this poll and other polls we've done show that men and women are in favor of these policies, that the United States is a complete outlier with the rest of the world. It makes no sense. Um, As Michelle knows more than anything, I mean, what is Congress waiting for? Right. Oh, don't, yeah. let's <laughs> do a whole segment about how I would redo Congress <laughs> with my magic wand. <laughs> and Tracy, you know, so unfortunately we're we're close to the end here. But like this election, I think is so powerful because we have, um, particularly on the Democratic side, someone who has centered women and girls throughout her career. Absolutely. And to imagine kind of what that then means for the policy outcomes. So, like, I'll leave it to you and Shupa to kind of close with just that thought. Like, what has that, what do you think that that means for us for the next three months? Absolutely. And I, I, I full disclosure, my first job out of col- uh, college was working for then Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton <laughs> on the Hill. So, so I, you know, I will always have a, a special place in my heart for her as my first ever boss. But I, I think that um, something that she said then is this incident was I'm a I'm a workhorse, not a show horse. Mm-hmm. So I think it's clear she's she's going to work hard for for all Americans. But I'm, I'm glad that she, it's 
it's not the symbolism isn't lost on her mm -hmm. that she fully embraced in um, the night that she became the presumptive nominee that this is historic and that this means something in the progress of of women and I think right now a lot of women of color you know speaking back to this the panel that was here today and, and um, the survey results want to make sure that it's clear that all women mm -hmm. are are centered in that vision and it's not just about white women and I think she's committed to doing that she's very cognizant of that and she has a fantastic and diverse team of women backing her mm -hmm. yeah and I would say it's nice to see someone really that understands these issues and has been pushing for them and doesn't need to be sold and doesn't need talking points and when you contrast her um, with oh conservative gosh. opponents it's like there's someone who's gonna take us forward and someone's gonna take us backward and mm -hmm. I think you know women and men and families all over America recognize that mm -hmm. well said amazing panel Tracy Ross Shilpa Padke thank you so much for joining us today um, you are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall show we'll be back after the bait after the break talking super PACs election 2016 and a lot of other good things tune in and we'll be back in a bit The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show, coming to you live here in our studio in Washington, D.C. Always great to be with you and would love to hear from you. If you want to give us a call, you can at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. And I'm excited about the next panel because we are in the midst of one of the wildest and craziest campaigns that we have ever seen, um, definitely since I've been alive. Um, I, I would say that, however, kind of the backdrop of this is there's this real um, ugly undercurrent that we see both when we talk about gender, when we talk about race and background. Um, and I'm excited because the three, my three next guests are really focusing and looking on these, um, focusing on these issues in a real way and how we can broaden kind of who represents us in this country um, and how we make that promise real. Uh, so coming to us live in studio, I'm excited to have Claire Breshnin, who is the executive director at She Should Run. Um, and Claire tweets at Claire, C-L-A-R-E-B-R-E-S-N-A-H-A-N, or at She Should Run. Coming to us on the phone are Peely Tobar, who is with the Latino Victory Project, and you can find her on Twitter at P-I-L-I-T-O-B-A-R-87. And last but definitely not least is the executive director of a, the BRAT Pack, which is a pack dedicated to helping getting more African Americans in elected office. Um, and he tweets Jasper at J-L-H the T-H-E third number three R-D welcome 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 I sound like I'm at Carolina Kitchen uh, to my <laughs> guests and it's great to have you here thank you thank you thank you for having us 
So Claire, I'm I'm gonna start with you because we were literally at a meeting yesterday yes, talking about issues around representation. Um, and that was on the backdrops of Hillary Clinton clinching the um, a, a, the apparent Democratic nominee with the number of delegates that same day. Um, but you live in this work. This is what you do. So tell us a little bit about She Should Run and, and why you come to do this work. Michelle, thanks for having me on. This is this is an incredible year to be in this movement. Uh, I've been with She Should Run for about five years now. Uh, in the executive director role for for over about six months. Oh, and, right, right. Thank you. <laughs> and you know, we're all about how do you inspire more women and girls to run in the first place. Mm-hmm. We know that there are a lot of folks aren't out there dying to run for office, particularly when we see the presidential election right now. But even now, when I'm in the studio looking at three women who are already capable, qualified leaders. We're about how do we get to women like you who aren't already in the pipeline to say, we need you and we need you to lead. And actually the country is looking for leaders who mm-hmm. have the unique background and, and aren't necessarily political animals. So how do we reach those women who aren't at the table yet and convince them that we need their leadership, we need them to step up? Uh, and we also know that you know, it's pretty clear that we don't get great policymaking and great government. We've shut out half the population from that mm-hmm. process. Mm-hmm. And uh, what an exciting and sometimes surreal time to be working in this movement. <laughs> but there's there's really no better moment when you have uh, a woman be the first first time to be a, a, at the top of the, the ticket. ticket. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and we know like our membership is nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. We have folks who are Bernie supporters to way on the other end. But mm-hmm. we can all agree that this moment is incredible, not only for the monumental moment of having a woman at the top of the ticket, but the fact of what is it going to do for generations of girls who can mm-hmm. think of themselves as president now. Mm-hmm. Um, Peely, so tell us a little bit about your work at the Latino Victory Project for our listeners who may not be as familiar. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So the Latino Victory Project is a pretty young organization. We've been around for about two years, and our goal is to elect more Latinos to uh, positions in the government at the local, state, um, and national level but also to just increase the political power of Latinos um, in the United States. Um, So we do work from working with uh, candidates and training them from um, the beginning stages to, you know, throwing fundraisers and making sure that we're supporting them both on the coordinated and the independent sides um, once they are actually running. And we're super excited that we, uh, just coming out of the California primaries, we're able to see four of our uh, candidates uh, come out strong and in going into the general election, aside of also uh, Secretary Clinton, who we endorsed um, last year in December. So we're incredibly excited about the work that we're doing. Um, you know, I agree with Claire that I think we're, we're all just looking for a more representative government, a more diverse government, where... Uh, you know, different voices can be heard and where the needs of our different uh, communities can uh, rise to the top and become a priority. So um, that's some of the work that we're doing. We continue to look for new candidates and look forward for to more Latinos uh, running for office at all levels and uh, just support as much as we can. 
That's awesome. And Jasper, last but definitely not least, um, you and I shared a stage recently at a National Urban League Conference, and I was struck by kind of one, you also similarly have a nonpartisan mission, but really focused on the African-American community. Tell us a little bit about Brat Pack and why you're doing this work. Well, thank you, Michelle, for having having me on today. Uh, Brat Pack was pretty much formed because African Americans were running for office, but not necessarily receiving the resources. Um, didn't know how to access resources, and they just needed to be shown, you know, that there are that there is support. How to get that support in order to be successful. Um, we, you know, there, there's, there's been a lot of studies and a lot of research and some polling done that says that, you know, for instance, Democrats will have a hard time if, or they have a harder time in getting elected in certain areas if there are no African Americans uh, on the ballot. You know, because we are at that point where Afri- the African American community has been, you know, sort of, you know, um, giving their support to a particular party and not necessarily seeing a return of, of investment when it comes to representation. Um, we should be, we are 13% of the population, and we feel that we should be 13% of those people who are serving in elected office. So, therefore, we can have our issues uh, towards the forefront of, you know, a lot of these platforms. Um, so far, we've helped about 17 candidates uh, to get elected throughout the country from city councils to school boards to mayors um this year we've seen some of our several of our candidates have made it through their primaries and they're on the ballot this year uh we have about 23 candidates that we are supporting uh this November election and we are typically staying with supporting African American candidates and we are focusing on a lot of attention in states like North Carolina where there are six African-Americans who are on the statewide ballot, this could be a very historic win. So we want to talk about making real change in states like North Carolina, then we need to be investing in our candidates who are running in these positions, three for the Superior Court, one for the Supreme, uh, is running for the Supreme Court, Lieutenant Governor, and as well as Treasurer. And those then will in turn impact the governor's race and also the U.S. Senate race there. So, you know, we say that, you know, we, we support our allies, but we, in turn, need some support within our community and support of our candidates. So when we come back from the break, one of the things that I want to do is, is ask each of you, um, you know, this has been a campaign where we've seen kind of sexism run rampant. Um, we've seen some of the ugliest attacks on um, people of color and particularly those in the Latino community. So let's talk about kind of those issues when we come back from the break. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show with Claire Peely and Jasper. And we'll be back after the break. Leslie Marshall, real people, real life, real talk. 8886-LESLIE.
This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Thank you again. We have the best listeners in the world, and we appreciate you tuning in. Um, if you want to join in the conversation, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. I'm back in studio and on the line with Jasper Hendricks, president of Brat Pack, Peely Tobar at the Latino Victory Project, and then Claire Breshnin, who's the executive director at She Should Run. And I know uh, my friend Michael from the Bronx is on the line. Michael, did you have a question? Hello, Michelle. Hey, Michael. Thanks so much for calling in again. It's always a pleasure, my friend. (laughs) You know, this is a very important topic because after the rhetoric that we hear from the likes of Donald Trump, other Republicans, and other highly prejudicial individuals who always feel that um, people of color are unqualified to sit on a bench or any um, government position. And then there's that other stereo, negative stereotype that we hear that people of color, Mexicans, African Americans, Latinos are always bad news. They're always criminals and they're always running from the police and that there's always a reason for the police to stop because they did something wrong. You know, it's like we need um, people of color in government positions so we can erase the stereotypes that we constantly hear and get people to understand that that kind of rhetoric that gets people wrongly convicted is that kind of rhetoric that gets people, innocent people, killed. No, Michael, all you got from me today is an amen. <laughs> because... <laughs> And I think one of one of his points in Pilar, um, Pili, I'd love for you to take the first crack. I mean, when we think about the rhetoric of how powerful, when we think about deporting 11 million people, when we think about, you know, just um, putting a whole group of people, Latinos or Mexicans, in one bucket and saying that these people are X, it's dangerous. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's 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 dangerous. It's outrageous, um, and it's not unfortunately not surprising. I mean, one of the things that I don't think we we discuss enough is the fact that when we see a candidate like Donald Trump, what he's saying um, really goes hand in hand with a lot of the policies that we've seen a lot of Republican members of Congress or senators put forth. Mm. Um, it's just that he's giving it, a powerful you know, the bigger, more hateful, and to be honest, completely racist words mm-hmm. um, and stereotypes attaching to them. Um, but I think, you know, Michael is 100% right. We do need more more um, people of color in, in government at all levels. But I think we also, you know, one of the things that I think the, the African-American community has done incredibly well is is to own that power, and it is right. There are so many different places, of Brett, and Jeff said it correctly, where um, without the African American vote, you you cannot get elected, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. that and that is amazing to own that power. That's something that I think that you know both as women and as Latinos that we need to learn and to 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 put in place even more because people like Donald Trump and like all of these different um, Republican members of Congress wouldn't be able to say the things they are saying if we held them accountable. Mm. And if we made clear that by you saying these things, you have basically lost our vote completely. And you getting elected will not be possible while you continue saying that. So I think more than anything else, coming out of this election, we need to make that very clear as women, as Latinos, as African-Americans, as Muslims. 
we need to make it clear that these attacks in our communities are not okay and that and we Jasper, will hold those accountable. Yeah, exactly. And Jasper, I know you're doing a lot of work on specifically that. How do you get people engaged and voting and registered? Tell us a, tell us a, a little bit about that and your work right now. Yeah, so we're working not just reg- voter registration. Um, we work with the governor in Virginia in restoration of voting rights for those who are form- formerly incarcerated, um, former felons. Um, we're also working to get people ID. Um, there, there's a lot of talk about you know voter suppression, and we need to change voter ID laws. But we believe that until those laws are changed, we need to make sure that people have the necessary tools that they need in order mm-hmm. to cast that ballot, so that way we can make that change in the in the legislature. You know, um, so we're we're doing that in Virginia. We're we're spending, like I said, going to spend a lot of time in North Carolina. Um, we have candidates in California working on, uh, you know, issues out there that can tie people in um, to get them engaged and to get them voting. We heard a lot about what happened in Ferguson. Ferguson, uh, you know, in, in all the unrest and, and how there needs to be change in Missouri, they have an actual great chance to do that um, in electing Robin Smith as the next Secretary of State um, mm. in the state of Missouri. Um, so we want to, we encourage people, we, we tie them, tie the issues in, you know, to why you need to come Their out activism. and vote That's right. um, in these elections. That's right. And so, so Claire, um, so much of our work right now and uh, here at the Center for American Progress, and even today we had a, an amazing panel on looking at the role of women um, of color, particularly African Americans and Latinos, and what they're thinking about in 2016. And I know this is a core focus for your organization. Um, how are women going to respond? We know that there's some women who see this as a historic candidacy and other women who are like, it doesn't matter. Um, and in some ways, I think that's also good for feminism, right? Like we're not just focusing. Right. Um, but but where where do we go from here? Where does, what is your, where does your work take you right now? Right now it's focused on how do we make sure that between the political rancor, mm-hmm. the racism, the sexism, that it's just oozing throughout this campaign and to even when there are folks and they're entitled to disagree on what this historic moment means Mm -hmm. is to make sure that every woman and girl knows that they're empowered and there are resources for them to think about running for office. Our focus is that this this could turn into a really dangerous moment in time where there's ramifications for generations of women and girls Mm -hmm. will not consider running for office. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, particularly a lot of our work is focused on millennial women, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's our Shisha Run Incubator, it's a great new program Mm -hmm. that, again, it's designed for the woman who should be thinking about running but hasn't thought about it yet. you know, there's a lot of competition out there. You can go start your own nonprofit. You can go be part of a new social venture. There's a lot of opportunities for millennials to affect change and millennial women to, to lead. And we need to make the case that government service is worth it and that they can absolutely make an impact. So through programs like the Incubator, we try to make the, the possibility of running for office more accessible and to make it known that that's actually where you can make a huge impact. You don't like the laws. You don't like how a community has been affected by certain issues. Go into the decision-making table and be the one who's actually writing the laws. How mm-hmm. powerful is that? Be the one. Wow, that's uh, probably one of the best ways to kind of close the conversation. 
whether or not you're talking about kind of engagement in the Latino community, African-American or women, you have to be the one that's going to step up and do it. And thank goodness that there's organizations out there that are now providing the support, um, the infrastructure, and um, sometimes just the know-how. It makes a difference when you have somebody to bounce ideas off. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been listening, I hope you have been. Go and check out Jasper Hendricks, Brat Pack, P. Lee Tobar from Latino Victory Project, and Claire She Should Run. We'll be right back after the break. Thanks so much for listening. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief Good afternoon and welcome to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. It's always great being with you and love hearing from you. If you want to give us a call, uh, the number is 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can chime in online at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle Jawando. And I'm excited about our next guest. Well, I have amazing guests. Yes, I, I do have to say, I mean, that's what happens when you join the Leslie Marshall Show family. Um, we bring you the best and the most informative guests and information in the land. But our next guest is someone who I had the honor and privilege of um, just recently meeting, and I'm upset that I just met him because I feel like we were supposed to be friends a long time ago. Um, but th- joining me on the phone coming from DePaul uh, College of Law is none other than Terry Smith. who's the Distinguished Research Professor of Law at DePaul College of Law, and he's also the author of the book Barack Obama, Post-Racialism, and the New Politics of Triangulation. Mm, Say it again. Terry Smith, thank you and welcome to the show. Thanks, Michelle. Good to be here. It's great to have you on, my friend. Um, You know, I was sharing in the last uh, segment that, you know, you meet different people at different stages in your in your life. And then the work that they bring, um, it just kind of opens up your opens up your mind and continues to push. And, And I said that you were someone who I was supposed to meet. I hadn't met before, but I was supposed to meet you in my life. So thank you, Terry Smith, for joining the show today. Likewise. <laughs> so, you know, Terry, tell our listeners a little bit about your book. Now, I know it came out in 2012, but we're in the midst of um, definitely one of the most fascinating um crazy, insane, racist, history-making, corrupt uh, campaigns that we've seen um, possibly ever. Um, And I think that there's so much that will be written, and I think we're still doing um, kind of exposés of of the uh, Obama presidency, and your book is one of them. So why don't you share with your listeners a little bit about your book if they're not familiar. Sure. So, 
my book is an, is an early uh, expose, one of the earlier exposés of Obama's uh, first term in office. Uh, and it's really premised on uh, the fact that white voters uh, insisted from the outset uh, that has the, has the price of his political success uh, that uh, Obama distanced himself from black voters. And so the book focuses on uh, the various ways in which he was forced uh, throughout his presidency uh, to distance himself from, from black voters and, and, and the fallout uh, from that, the consequences uh, of that uh, both to, uh, to his presidency and to the, uh, the body politic uh, as a whole. Mm. Now, it, it's it's interesting that in the title of your book, you have post-racialism, because um, it occurs to me that this week, um, when we were unfortunately talking about the passing of the greatest Muhammad Ali this week, that there were a few people who kept on remarking Ali transcended racism, um, and he transcended race. Um, and it's funny that the only people who ever have to transcend their race happen to be African-Americans, which I always <laughs> think is really interesting. Yeah. I have yet to hear um, a white politician being asked to kind of transcend their race. And sure. so it, it leads me to kind of imagine like that was something Obama often talked about or you often heard talk about um, in the context of Obama and his role in the and and him becoming president of the United States. Sure, uh, his his ascendancy to the uh, to that office is is couched in terms of post racialism, i.e., his uh, transcending his race. Uh, the irony there is that without the strong cohesive support uh, of black voters. Uh, in the primaries in 2008 and in the general election in 2008, and then again in his re-election, uh, particularly in his re-election, uh, where he lost uh, the white vote uh, very lopsidedly. Without that cohesive black support, he couldn't have won re-election. So for all of the, the talk of, of Obama's transcending race, he's had to be very dependent uh, upon uh, black voters uh, as a collective uh, in order to get uh, to where he's gotten. Uh, so, so it's a myth then, uh, that post-racialism uh, uh, is a myth. And it's one, uh, unfortunately, at, at various turns, you know, the president uh, uh, seemed to uh, have internalized, uh, you know, uh, and I detail that in various ways uh, in my book, when, uh, you know, when the president says, well, I can't be the president of, of black America, I've got to be the president uh, of all Americans, but yet the president had to rely specifically and especially on blacks and Latinos for his reelection in 2012. Mm -hmm. So you see mm -hmm. the tension there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, the, and the president has to say that. Again, my, my argument in my book uh, isn't that uh, the president is compromised. My argument focuses on the insistence of white voters that the president distance himself from race has the price of his political success and, 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 and has the price uh, of progress. Uh, at least symbolic progress in black equality. So, you know, again, it, this 
because we literally just talked about this this week um, and we talked about the role of Muhammad Ali, I remember one of the tweets that I saw shortly thereafter um, was from a uh, older white writer for with the Atlantic. And he said, as a white man, I am old enough to have lived long enough to remember um, when there was this general disdain for Muhammad Ali for not being grateful enough. Um, and yet it's interesting to see how time has then kind of changed the way that everyone talked about. I think Muhammad Ali was significant for particularly the African-American community because he so centered his race. So much of his work and his bluster was about that. And actually, I think we have a, a clip about uh, from Muhammad Ali. Uh, guys, do you have that for me? Yes. Fast. Last night I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. Incredible. Fast. Incredible. You, George Fullman, all of you chumps are going to bow when I whoop him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. <laughs> I... Everybody stop talking now. Attention. I told you, all of my critics, I told you all that I was the greatest of all time. Be something listen. I told you today, I'm still the greatest of all time. Never again defeat me. Never again say that I'm going to be defeated. Never again make me the underdog until I'm about 50 years old. <laughs> I mean, the power of, you know, it, it is prolific for me. You know, I I was not kind of around. But to think about uh, African-American boxer during that time saying, I'm the greatest and affirming, and not only just affirming that, but saying, how dare you question? I mean, it is something that you don't, you, you don't see with the same power, particularly um, right now. Sure. I mean, uh, what what black politician or, or, or black leader uh, speaks uh, in, in those unequivocal terms these days? Well, very few, uh, uh, if any, certainly no uh, elected black leaders. So, so Muhammad Ali uh, represents a bygone uh, era, and uh, it's important to note that when 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 white people say that Muhammad Ali transcended race. It's important to remember that uh, athletic sport, sports figures and entertainers uh, uh, for for white Amer- Americans who consume uh, our culture, uh, it, well, it's not that uh, these individuals uh, like Muhammad Ali uh, transcend race or hide their race. It, it, it's that uh, white Americans have a selective memory. Uh, uh, about them and, and have a selective appetite for them. Uh, so, 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 so they simply consume the entertainment value uh, of someone like Muhammad Ali uh, and ignore uh, his very serious uh, politics. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, one of the things that I am often hit with um, from some of our, I won't call people trolls uh, because that probably, I am a sci-fi fan and so I think trolls is probably too nice of a word. Um, but, uh, you know, some people who engage or attempt to engage on Twitter often say, you know, listen, Barack Obama, um, with all his talk of race, has set 
kind of race relations back that, you know, maybe if he didn't constantly talk about these issues or make these kind of declarations, that race relations would be further along. Um, And so you see both this burden of, you know, Barack Obama should say more and affirm, but then at the same time, not everybody, definitely, say that he talks about his race and um, makes these kind of statements too often. So how how do you... I dare say that the, that the people who uh, make that observation, the latter observation, that he talks too much about race, are probably people who didn't vote for him anyway, mm. and, and, and would never have uh, vote for him or anyone like him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so let's fast forward to the election that we currently are in. You know, as both a, a scholar and uh, also a, a social critic, you know, you often write in the Huffington Post, um, most recently talking about your new native home. Um, you're not a native of Chicago, but your home of Chicago right now. Um, what, what are you thinking about this election? And what have you written anything about it yet? I know if you haven't, it is forthcoming, but would love to get your take on particularly the last week with this election. Sure. Well, I've written uh, a number of columns uh, in the Huffington Post about uh, this election. Uh, the, the column that you're referring to is, is, is specific to uh, Chicago, but uh, in, a, in a column prior to that, uh, which I believe is entitled uh, The Memo That uh, Hillary Clinton Probably Won't Read and, and, uh, But Should, uh, I talk about the, the centrality uh, of the black vote uh, in this election. Uh, and, and, and there's a tendency, uh, particularly for white Democrats, to downplay the significance, to rely on it heavily, uh, but to take the black vote uh, for granted. And, w- and when... Uh, Donald Trump clinched the Republican uh, nomination within days in the New York Times. There was an article uh, quoting uh, sources in the Clinton campaign saying that she was going to uh, try to attract uh, moderate Republicans and and Republicans who were uh, repulsed by Donald Trump. And this is someone who hadn't firmed up her base of support in the Democratic Party. And, and so there's, there's a real danger uh, uh, in this election of, of misjudging uh, the degree to which uh, Republicans uh, will not rally around uh, Donald Trump. Ultimately, uh, most Republicans are going to vote for Donald Trump. And ultimately, the embarrassment about uh, Donald Trump for uh, the Republican establishment isn't his racism. It it isn't his nativism. It's the fact that he voices it, that he explicates it. Because those currents of racism, of nativism, uh, of uh, uh, anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, see uh, Pete Wilson, the former governor uh, Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. of, uh, California, uh, was the originator uh, Mm. of of this anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, within the Republican Party in in, in the 1990s. So Mm -hmm. this is, uh, all of these things are strands uh, that really are the foundation of the party, which is why the party's base is in uh, the old Confederacy. So their problem with Trump isn't what he believes. It's that he says it. that he makes it explicit and mm. doesn't adorn it uh, 
in in the same way and mm-hmm. with the same rhetoric as, for instance, Ronald Reagan did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's fascinating. Our um, in the segment before we had um, join us Peely Tobar, who's a power of the Latino Victory Project. And it's a very similar point that she raised that much of what Donald Trump is saying, he's saying because the party and their policies that they've put forth have moved in that direction. And yet Donald Trump is just the master entertainer and has been able to articulate it to attract um, support that the Republican Party may have always had, but yet they are now much more vocal and 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 stating and affirming the support support for these kind of policies. And I think that there's some fear there that maybe we actually shouldn't be saying this out loud, but this is what our policies are anyway. Oh, absolutely. There has always, for instance, been a, a uh, an intertwined dialogic relationship between uh, white nationalists uh, uh, like David Duke uh, and the Republican Party, which is why when David Duke uh, ran for uh, he ran for the Senate, people like to recall his uh, his run for the governorship of Louisiana in the 1990s, but he actually ran uh, against an incumbent Democratic senator and took 45 percent of the vote. Uh, in the general election. So uh, so the relationship then between those elements of our society, Klan-like, uh, you know, uh, Ku Klux Klan-like uh, white nationalist elements in the Republican Party uh, is intertwined. And indeed, the Republican Party's base in the South uh, would not exist but for its reliance on elements like David Duke. So we are getting ready to close. And so, Terry, uh, this conversation has gone by too fast. But uh, where can readers uh, or some of our listeners, how can they can continue to engage um, of both your scholarship and your work? Sure. Uh, so I uh, uh, actively uh, blog with Huffington Post, and, and I have a column uh, about once a week, and, and that will be uh, roughly the frequency uh, of my columns during this uh, election uh, cycle. So that's, that's one place where uh, readers can read my work and, 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 and engage in a dialogue with me. Awesome. Terry Smith, who has been a wonderful guest, joining us. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. And it's always great to be with you. We are coming into the final hour, um, but always a good time on The Leslie Marshall Show. And listen, I love to hear from you. So go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can also find us on Twitter at Leslie Marshall or at Michelle with one L, Jawando. So I am 
I, you know, I always talk about how great my guests are. And um, my guests today are both colleagues, um, college friends, but dynamic women in their own right who are literally working every single day to change the status and the state of women here in this country. So let me introduce our guest. Joining us on the line is none other than Vicki Shabo. She is the vice president uh, at the National Partnership for Women and Families, and she tweets at at NPWF. Welcome, Vicki, to the show. Thanks, Michelle. It's really exciting to be here with you. So great to have you, Vicki. And then joining us in studio is none other than Fatima Goss-Graves, who is the Senior Vice President for Programs at the National Women's Law Center. She tweets at F-Goss, G-O-S-S, Graves, G-R-A-V-E-S. Fatima, welcome. I am so happy to be here with you. Yay! I'm <laughs> so happy you're here. And last but definitely not least, killing it with her purple dress on today. Day, by the way, um, is none other than Etta Collins Coleman, who is the co-founder and chief public affairs officer at All In Together. And she tweets at Etta, E-D-D-A, Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, or at all underscore in underscore together. Welcome, Etta. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. So excited to have this amazing panel. Um, you know, today here at CAP, we kicked off the morning with Melissa Harris-Perry and Teresa Younger, uh, Maria Teresa Komar, um, talking about the state of African-American women and Latino women specifically in the 2016 election. But all of your organizations are centered around women and women empowerment and your work. And so, Vicki, um, for our guests who may not be as familiar with the partnership, um, can you give them a little bit of a background? Absolutely. So the National Partnership for Women and Families is based in Washington, D.C. Um, we actually just last night celebrated our 45th anniversary with a spectacular gala. Uh, we are the organization that led the nine-year fight to pass the Family and Medical Leave Act back in 1993. Uh, we also had a, a strong hand in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. And we are dedicated to uh, ensuring that all workers have access to uh, quality, affordable health care, reproductive rights and health for women, and fair and family-friendly workplaces. We're working to ensure a more inclusive, fairer economy um, that creates prosperity and opportunity for everyone. And then, Fatima, why don't you tell our listeners about NWLC? You know, we worked um, so closely together, as well as Vicki, um, when I was on the Hill on a number of issues. But I um, was also struck, and people don't know as much about even all of the litigation that NWLC is often involved in. It's true. And uh, so the National Women's Law Center was founded almost 45 years ago, and we have in that time worked to expand opportunities for women and their families in nearly every aspect of their lives, at work, at school, in terms of accessing health care and reproductive rights, and and lifting women uh, and families out of poverty. And we really believe in using every tool in the toolbox. 
So that means that we work to pass critical legislation. We work to implement that legislation. And sometimes that looks like taking on clients and litigating cases all the way to the Supreme Court. And we really work to engage with the public pretty broadly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then last, um, Etta, all in together, I I was fortunate enough to meet Lauren um, a few years ago when she was starting. She had this idea and had this energy. And I said, if you can make that happen, then you're a woman I want on my team. And now, a few years later, it is running full speed beat ahead. So tell us a little bit about All In Together. Absolutely. We are the novice of the group. Um, (laughs) A year and a half old, but we are small and mighty. And what we do is we help women amplify their voices, not only in the personal and professional sphere, but political as well. We know women, you know, we may uh, canvas, we may write a letter, but we don't give money to political campaigns. And if we are going to run for office, we have to think about it to make sure that we check every single box on that list uh, where, you know, you see men and they they run uh, without looking at that. And so we try to help women engage, um, advocate for themselves. We're issue agnostic, we're nonpartisan, um, and we bring them to Washington, a lot of C-suite level women as well. We bring them to Washington. Washington to introduce them to how Congress works and to meet with their members, uh, senators and and, and members of the House um, to show them what it is to be engaged. Mm -hmm. So in a few days here in Washington, D.C., about 5,000 women from all over the country are going to descend really looking at issues, um, international issues, issues around women's health and access, um, pay equity, uh, sexual assault. And in my sense, is where we are at a place, particularly now with who we know is going to uh, be the Democratic nominee uh, for president, Hillary Clinton, on one side. On the other side, their Republican nominee who has a tortured and long history on women's issues. But it just feels like that we're at the we're at a moment, like something is happening. We're talking about these issues. You know, at this meeting, this convening of women activists and leaders could not be more timely, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I mean, our issues are visible in ways that we haven't seen in in I don't know when. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. I feel like we're really at the cusp of making lots of different types of historic changes. Mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. you know, with the first... Uh, women nominee, that's one historic glass ceiling that has been broken, but we're on the cusp of a lot of really critical policy changes mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, this is Vicki. I could not agree more. Um, I think we have seen such dramatic um, progress for all of the issues that we work on, whether we're talking about paid leave or paid sick days or pay equity, pregnancy discrimination, um, the public conversation around sexual assault. Women are at the forefront of the conversation. Um, we and, and all the organizations on this phone have long said that women are the center of the economy. Um, and I think that the public dialogue, as well as the policy progress that we're seeing, is really bearing that out. And this next six months really couldn't bring into sharper relief um, an opportunity to define the kind of country that we want to be uh, in terms of how we treat women, how women participate and are able to participate, what kinds of opportunities we provide for our children and who we are going forward. 
I mean, what a time to be alive, right? Mm -hmm. What a time mm -hmm. to be involved in all of this. And, you know, as a mother to two daughters, how exciting is it? Mm -hmm. And I know you have three daughters, and I'm sure you... I have boys. Your boys. <laughs> These are conversations. <laughs> These are great conversations, have right? That's right. And to show them what's <laughs> happening and to show them how... Uh, you know, there's a collective impact here, mm -hmm. and it's a it's we're at the mm -hmm. we're at the groundswell, and it's going to be amazing. Yeah, it really I, I agree. I've got a boy too, and he's really excited about the potential for having a first woman president, and not at all put off by the idea that we would be having these robust national conversations about women. Um, he's a, he's a feminist. It's awesome. That's right. <laughs> Go ahead, because I need some good catches for my three daughters, okay? So I appreciate bringing this to them. Um, when we come back, I, I do want to talk a little bit about women's leadership, because I think we're at a place um, where you're starting to see women more visible in, in a, both elected office, but in their communities. Um, and what I think that means for our country, I think uh, oftentimes we kind of silo women, and we don't always even think about women of color when we say that, but we're starting to see some of those conversations emerge, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit when we come back. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show in studio with Etta Collins, Fatima Goss-Graves, and Vicki Shabo joining us on the phone. We'll be right back after the break. Good afternoon and welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show coming to you with Vicki Shabo, National Partnership Women and Families, Fatima Goss-Graves, National Women's Law Center, and Etta Collins-Coleman all in together. So um, during the break, we actually got into a conversation about the Stanford rape case. Um, and I think some of our listeners know that one of the things that I had the privilege of working on um, when I was on in the Senate was both the military sexual assault work um, from my boss as well as the campus sexual assault work. And Fatima and I um, had many long late nights and strong conversations as we kind of worked on the bill. Um, but I think that there are cultural conversations happening sometimes in isolation. Um, but the Stanford case is another example of it starting to kind of break through. Um, what, what have been your thoughts about this whole situation? I, I mean, I just have to begin by saying this is sort of rape culture meets white privilege mm. and it's on display right now in a way that you know typically these situations might roil an individual college campus mm -hmm. but it's really shocking the country mm -hmm. in um in a really powerful way. And, and can you give our listeners just a, a quick background about what what the Stanford rape case is or what's happening? Yeah, so what happened in this case was a woman um, was essentially unconscious and um, was raped, digitally raped. And the only thing that stopped it were two biking bystanders mm -hmm. from Sweden who, from 20 years away, saw what happened and, and stopped it, jumped mm -hmm. in and stopped it, chased the guy down. Um, she was unconscious for hours. And uh, he was recently convicted of rape in California and um, 
just this week we found out he was uh, sentenced to only six months. Right. And the prosecutors had asked for six years, actually, I think. Yeah. And I so six months mm -hmm. for raping a woman. Um, and the other details I left out was that it was basically behind a dumpster in mm -hmm. a ditch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a horrifying story. It's not a story that is so unusual, unfortunately, because what we know is that women around the country are, are experience sexual assault on campus. What's different here is that there were witnesses, there is a conviction, mm -hmm. and he gets six months. Mm -hmm. And I just saw a Mike Check Daily that he's actually getting released in September, so he will only serve three months. Mm. 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 Yeah, likely with good times. So. And I think one of the reasons, um, and Vicki, I want to bring you into this conversation. One of the reasons um, why we're hearing about this is that the survivor in this situation actually published the letter that she read in court. And in a real way, her voice was visible. She's she's wanted to remain anonymous, as anyone would under this horrifying um, circumstance. But she allowed her statement to be read. And it was such a powerful um, letter. It was read on CNN. Um, it's available on BuzzFeed in a number of different mediums. And, you know, Vicki, the thing that I think here is this is another example of women's voices being centered and what happens when, how that changes the conversation when women's voices are put in the center. I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I've been really struck by the attention that this case has gotten and um, and the responses to it. And you know, I, one of the things about this case that's so unusual is the uh, the defendant's father speaking up to say how unfair his how unfairly his son is being treated and how this will ruin his life and sort of the backlash to that and women and men speaking out to say that seems not to be the main point here um, and that you know that that what happens um, between two people needs to be consensual and and uh, you know I think that um, the, the the risk of this particular period of time with the presidential campaign is really bringing out some of the uglier sides of misogyny, but I think that mm -hmm. that's also providing a fantastic opportunity for, again, women to be central to the conversation and for reasonable women and men to come together to talk about how we treat each other in the society and what it means to be full and equal participants. And Etta, your your organization is is named All In Together. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about the fact that we all have to be talking about these issues. Um, ha more than half of the population have to be engaged in a real way. Absolutely, absolutely, and that we can do it together. It's a collective impact. It goes back to that conversation. And it's so interesting you say that because uh, we're talking about elections. Is what Vicky was saying, and you know, women, especially Black women, since 1980 have turned every election mm -hmm. and that's amazing mm -hmm. that you know we are not given that credit mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. or that acknowledgement at all mm -hmm. and that women will ultimately um, decide this election so well. you know we ha we have a few minutes left but the question I'd like to ask each of you is um, I am bestowing magic wands um, to to my friends and if you had an opportunity to kind of fundamentally change or shift one thing um, whether it's our politics or in policy, what would you do? And so, Vicki, I'll start with you. <laughs> That's a great question, Michelle. <laughs> right. uh, let I'm me be big here. I think that I would fundamentally shift our culture from thinking about 
government and public policy as something that gets in the way of individuals' lives mm. into something that really creates a baseline and a platform upon which individuals can live their best and highest lives and which creates a more the most inclusive and prosperous economy for all. And that would allow us to get to a country that has universal paid family and medical leave um, available through social insurance program. It would get us to a place where parents are no longer forced to choose between staying home with a sick child and putting food on the table. It would allow women finally to be paid equally for the work that they do. Um, it would allow us to raise the minimum wage, recognizing that uh, when people have cash in their pockets and have financial security, they're able to be better contributors to society um, and to the economy. And it would allow us once and for all to treat women as full and equal participants in all aspects of life, whether education, the workplace, society, culture. And it would allow us to respect each other more. Anna? Wow. Uh, ditto to everything she said, but also to ensure that those policies that are in place, that we change those policies. So that's electing women to higher offices in the House and the Senate, local offices as well, that make those changes to make that impact known. That's oh. important. All right. And Fatima? Well, I'll just say Vicki and Etta have their magic wand, so <laughs> I don't have to do those, and I am grateful for that. I will use my wand really like a bullhorn because what mm. I would really like to see is is an opportunity for it to have more voices amplified, more mm. voices visible. I'd like to I'd like to see girls and women of color being at the center and their voices amplified. I'd like to see the messages that came out of the statement of the Stanford victim being able to be amplified. Mm -hmm. You need a bullhorn. You need mm -hmm. a bullhorn. Mm -hmm. All right, bullhorn changing government, more elections. Like, I got it. I mean, in my world, it's done, right? Um, ladies, I, I cannot thank you enough. Etta, Vicky, Fatima, I hate how quickly this time goes by, but we'll we'll figure it out and we'll have to have you all back because this was a good conversation, but it's just the beginning. Um, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back after the break with author Ibram Kende, uh, assistant professor of African-American history at the University of Florida. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back after the break. Good afternoon and welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. It's been great being with you the last few hours and I'm excited heading into the last 30 minutes because of the both the history that I have um, with this guest, but also I'm excited because we have a historian that even the title of his book um, leads to conversation for hours. Um, and I'm excited to start to get into that with him on today. So joining me over the phone is none other than Dr. Ibram Kende, who is the Assistant Professor of African American History at the University of Florida and the author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Professor Kende is a professor of contemporary African American history 
with a particular emphasis on racist and anti-racist ideas and movements. His previous book, award-winning book, was The Black Campus Movement, Black Students and Racial Reconstitution of Higher Education. And before I uh, bring him in, um, let me just read this quote from the Washington Post review of his book. Kendi writes, so many prominent Americans, many of whom we celebrate for their progressive ideas and activism, many of whom had very good intentions, subscribe to assimilation, assimilationist thinking that has also served up racist beliefs about black inferiority. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kende. Oh, it's, of course, a pleasure <laughs> to be with you talking about this book. How are you? I am so excited to have you on um, and to talk about your book. Um, we have some some of the best listeners in talk radio on the Leslie Marshall Show. And before we even got started with the first segment, we already have someone who's interested in hearing um, and talking to us. So Reggie and Georgia, we're going to come to you in one second. But um Ibram, why don't you tell us a little bit about the background of your book um, and how you came to really write this uh, this almost definitive, uh, the way that Washington Post has described it, is an engrossing and relentless intellectual history of prejudice in America. Well, I think the background is primarily I realized that this type of book had never been written. And so we we did not have a a history of racist ideas that chronicled chronicled racist ideas from their origins to the present day. Nor did we have a history that recognized that there were two types of racist ideas. Uh, The more popular or known type that states that the racial groups are biologically distinct and, and certain racial groups, namely black people, are biologically or genetically inferior. But another type of racist idea has, has claimed that black people are culturally inferior, mm-hmm. uh, that our skin color is, is aesthetically inferior. Uh, and so in every other type of way, that other type of racist um, has stated that black people are inferior, and that group is assimilationist. Uh, and so I sort of differentiate between segregationists who, who more or less look at genetic inferiority from assimilationists who talk more about behaviorally or even aesthetic uh, inferiority and, and, and really show how these two kinds of racists have, have debated over the course of American history. And then I bring in a third group, anti-racists, who are like, well, actually, the racial groups are, are equal. Mm. Um, so let's just go quickly to Reggie from Georgia, who's on the line. Reggie? And we might have Reggie from Georgia. Do we still have you? Yes. How you doing? Happy Hi. Birthday, you guys. Thanks so much for calling in, Reggie. Yes, you're welcome. I would. Just, I would just like to know how do you guys feel about Donald Trump's racism towards those two judges? One who happens to be an American Mexican, and another one who happens to be an American Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much to say, Reggie. <laughs> But um, I'll, I'll let uh, Dr. Kende take the take the first one there, because I think one of the reasons I have so much to say is in some ways Trump is acknowledging um, and is articulating uh, an, an idea that people of color, 
um, no matter whether they be African-American or Latino, are somehow incapable of being fair or just um, the same way perhaps a white male judge could be. And that's rooted in something. And I think, you know, your book, Dr. Kende, basically exposes where that thinking comes from. But I think Donald Trump just articulated something that many others feel. I think that there are members on the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee who haven't articulated that, but maybe in a subconscious, implicit way are thinking that when they see judges of color coming before their committee. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, and I think there is this idea that people of color cannot be objective and that there's this, there's this long sort of interlinking of whiteness and objectivity. And, and I think partly because the whole notion of, of being objective, whether that's an objective judge or an objective journalist or an objective scholar, uh, emerged in the late uh, 1880s, early 1990s, which many people know as, to a certain extent, the crowning years of scientific uh, racist ideas. Uh, and so there really has long been that, that interlinking. I try to sort of chronicle that in the, in, you know, in the book. And, and I think you're absolutely correct. I think I saw a poll today that stated that 49% of Americans do not even think what Donald Trump said was even racist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but, you know... <laughs> Was something that I thought was uh, fascinating, and we talked about this kind of off segment in my um, previous um, segment was thinking about the Stanford rape case. So in that situation, you had a young man, Stanford athlete, swimmer. And there's this huge outcry and actually a petition to get the judge removed. But this guy was an Olympian uh, swimmer um, who who digitally raped a young woman. And if it was not for some bystander intervention, many people feel like it would have been much worse. But the judge was also a former Stanford athlete. And the prosecutor asked for six years, but he was only given six months. And will actually, I heard recently today, will only serve maybe three months. And what I think that that both illustrates is that he saw in this young man a piece of himself and there was empathy there. But yet we find and there's a similar situation that people are now talking about where you had an African-American man who was actually found not to have raped a young woman because the young woman recanted her story and said that it was a lie. But he was also an athlete and he was sentenced to five years in prison for something he did not commit. But he similarly was a star athlete. But the difference here was he was black versus this white man who actually did digitally rape this young woman. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think one of the sort of problems is that even this whole notion that human beings can not be biased, I think, is a, is a very problematic uh, assessment. Uh, and I think clearly that judge, as you stated, saw empathy. And, and I think what, what creates a problem is when you have a, a uh, so many different white male judges, uh, and so they're able to express em- empathy for white males. Uh, and then you, you have so few uh, judges of other uh, races and genders, and so that creates this massive inequality. Um, you know, 
as it relates to empathy. And and then of course those judges are not stating, oh, I didn't feel empathy. That I'm, you know, I'm 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 not biased. I think that only adds to sort of the confusion, you know. But I think I, I I've never really believed that that humans can truly be be unbiased. That they can be uh, subjective. Uh, and I think the very people who were creating ideas like that, that humans can be objective were also the very people who were enshrining into disciplines notions of black biological inferiority. It was some of the same people. So we are going to uh, come back after the break. I'd like you to talk about where you see the 2016 elections going and how, how do we, can we rid ourselves of these kind of racist ideas? Uh, would love to get your take on that. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be back after the break with Dr. Ibram Kendi, assistant professor at University of Florida. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Joining me now is Dr. Ibram Kendi, who is the Assistant Professor of African American History at the University of Florida and author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He tweets at Dr. D-R-I-B-R-A-M. So, a question that I have, and, and, and I've seen you answer it uh, a few different ways, um, is your definition of a racist idea is a simple one. It is any concept that regards one racial group as inferior or superior to another racial group in any way. It seems simple enough, but we struggle with that in our country. Why? I think because... Many of us have been taught um, ever since we've gained the concept um, of of difference, and ever since we've been, you know, taught complex ideas that the racial groups are that there's a racial hierarchy, and and so I think I think people are constantly sort of producing and defending. Uh, these racist ideas to explain the disparities that exist in our country, um, and the reason why they want to explain those dispar- the reason why they want to rationalize those disparities in our country through racist ideas is because if they don't rationalize them through racist ideas, then they're going to have to admit the widespread racial discrimination uh, that anti-racists have long stated exists in this country. So there's a sort of a very clear political sort of function that exists for people to continue to produce and defend these racist ideas. Uh, And then I also will say very quickly that many of us don't even recognize um, 
the racist ideas that we've internalized over the course of our lives, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are primarily because our generation does not say things like a specific race, black people are inferior. Mm-hmm. Instead, we say things like, this is what, what's wrong with black people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think one of, you, you make that point in your book and even in the some of the reviews that there are people that we don't typically think of racist, Barack Obama, W.E.B. Du Bois, Susan B. Anthony, Abraham Lincoln. But in in assimilating a certain thinking, you're saying that they have both embraced um, what is flawed logic in, in kind of understanding what race is. So pro- progressives in particular, like a progressive like Barack Obama or W.B. Du Bois or even myself, I believe, I long believed this idea that discrimination had, in a sense, made black people inferior, whether it's slavery, uh, whether it's segregation, that literally, whether it's poverty, that these discriminatory systems had literally undermined um, and degenerated the behaviors of black people, which is one of the reasons why it's so important to eliminate these systems. Mm -hmm. And this idea has been passed on uh, through generations of progressives. And the end, I the end point of that idea is that black people are inferior. Now, they are inferior because of this discriminatory system that made them inferior, but the end point is that they're inferior. And I didn't realize that um, until I took that hard stand of this is a racist idea and anything mm. else, anyone who states that. Um, and I had to sort of admit my own racist ideas at the, you know, at the, at the onset of the text, and that was one of the racist ideas that I held. Mm. So, um, my friend David from Arizona is on the line. David, are you still on? Uh, yes. Hi, David. Yes. Thanks so much uh, for calling in. Appreciate the call. Yeah, I, 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 this, these racist ideas were have been, I mean, used especially for both sides, and I find it kind of, like, uh, humorous in a way that the, like, media is trying to change the narrative of what happened in 2008 um, because I'm looking right at a where the Clinton aide claims Obama's photo wasn't intended as a smear. It's when he was in Kenya in a, wearing a turban and dressed up and that was kind of what started the birther movement. Mm. Thank you, David, for, for the question. I mean, I think, um, you know, Dr. Kendi, David points to um, these implicit ideas um, and actions, how often do we really recognize them? And, you know, even as an African-American, um, how how do I interpret them even for myself? And and I think he points to, to an example, but, but there are, are many. Yeah, and I, I think that we have to recognize that we're constantly at war internally with these ideas that have been uh, taught to us our whole lives, even even people who identify as progressive, even people who want to recognize the racial groups uh, as equal. And so just like anything else that, you know, let's say we've been raised to do a particular thing, and when we come of age, uh, we realize, okay, that's not the right thing to do, so we're constantly trying to get ourselves to to do the right thing. It's the same thing, I think, as it relates to these these racist ideas, but we first have to take a position of, Either the racial groups are equal uh, or they're not. And mm. if they're not, then that means that there are certain things that are wrong with black people that supposedly aren't. Uh, white people do not have those wrongs 
uh, as well. And, and I think the first step is to take the position. I think the second step is to learn all of those different ideas that we, don't, we haven't even recognized are racist. And I think I hope that's one of the things that people gained from stamp from the beginning. You know, I, I think it's an interesting moment in history. Um, uh, you know, I I know you are a father. Um, I am, my husband and I are the proud parents of three young girls. They will grow up in a world, they have never grown up in a world where there hasn't been either an African-American or, and I'm going to speak it into existence, a woman president. Um, and that is the world that they will grow up in into, um, which is fascinating for me on so many levels when you talk about inferiority and, and complexes, but that is kind of their macro. Now, the, their, the micro and the world that they live, it may not feel that equal all the time, but the macro, it seems like we are progressing in some senses, um, but at a very high level, right? And, and we really will find equality when it trickles down all the way all the way to the average boy and girl. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think one of the debates that I'm sure you've had with people, uh, I've had with people, was between this debate as to whether we've been making sort of progress racially or mm-hmm. even as it relates to gender. And we've had sort of one side say, no, we haven't really made any progress in the last 50 years. Uh, things in certain ways have gotten worse. And then another side has stated, no, we've actually made racial progress. And, and one of the things that I found, one of the reasons why I think both sides were, both sides of the debate sounded very good <laughs> and mm-hmm. usually believed themselves to be the correct because, was because they actually were both correct. And, and so I chronicle in the book not only racial progress, but also the simultaneous progression of racism. Mm-hmm. And so what, what that means in the sense of, as you, you take Obama or even uh, Hillary Clinton, is that when Obama was elected, and I'm sure if, if this happens with, with Hillary, is that certain people are going to say, you see, sexism does not exist anymore. Right, right? Racism right. does gone. not exist. Look at Obama, look at Hillary. Mm-hmm. And so that creates a scenario in which it makes it harder for people to demonstrate the existence of, of gender or even racial discrimination. Dr. Kendi, we are getting ready to, to close out, but I will definitely encourage our listeners um, to check out their book. How can people continue to stay in touch with you? But if you stated earlier, you can tweet with me uh, at Dr. Uh, Ibram. Uh, that's my Twitter handle, Dr. Ibram, I-B-R-A-M as in man. Um, my website is ibram.org, I-B-R-A-M dot O-R-G. And of course, you can contact me through my site. Um, of course, you can stay in touch with me through uh, my work, uh, Stamp from the Beginning, is, is on the shelf, and I hope to... Uh, and if you haven't checked it out, well, now you know. This is, uh, and thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to definitely have you back. This is Michelle Jawando. This is the Leslie Marshall Show. It's been great being with you for the last three hours, and I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. Thank you, and take care. <laughs> <laughs>